This morning, we are going to be looking at Genesis, uh, starting in Genesis chapter 37. We're going to be looking at the life of Joseph. And um, you, pro- you may not know this, but we have two wonderful women who have been helping us, who started helping us produce our bulletins, Chandra Ford and Virginia Yip. So if you have the opportunity, please thank them for their, their service. It takes a lot of time and effort to put a bulletin together. Um, it's not just simple cutting and pasting. Um, and I want to uh, take responsibility um, for the fact that the text is not printed in the bulletin this morning, and there's, a t- there's not a title there either. And that's my fault because I didn't get that out in time. Uh, but for those of you who really love titles, uh, the title of this sermon is God and the Pit, Suffering and the Gospel. And uh, the text that we're going to be looking at uh, starts in Genesis 37. So let me encourage you to pull one of those black pew Bibles out if you don't have one of your own. Genesis is the first book of the Bible, so it's easy to find. Chapter 37, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 4, and then 18 through 28. But keep your Bibles open, because we're going to look at several other verses that follow. So as you turn there... uh, Reflect on the fact for a moment that that you live in a culture of planning. We live in a culture uh, where we know that if we want to get somewhere, uh, we've got to plan how to get there. Otherwise, we won't get anywhere. So we set goals and we plan our days in 15-minute increments. And we make five-year goals and 10-year goals to help get us to where we want to be. We work hard uh, to build our, our bodies, our muscles, and our bank accounts, and our businesses, and grow our minds. You know, we try to achieve maximum benefit, and maximum output, and maximum happiness for ourselves and for those around us. But as we make these plans, I would suggest that we probably never plan to suffer, I mean, why would we do that? Suffering seems like such an undesirable thing. It doesn't seem like, like a necessary step to get us to where we want to be. So we'd like to avoid it. And yet the Bible tells us to expect it. In this passage that we're about to read, uh, our, our sermon text, it's about Joseph's suffering And God is never mentioned in the passage, not even once. And that's the problem for many of us who deal with struggling, who deal with suffering. The question of where is God in the midst of this? And so often we don't know. And so we ask the question, where are you, God? Why are you allowing this to happen? Now, some of us are theologically and philosophically, philosophically convinced that the presence of evil and suffering is not a sufficient argument against God's existence. And yet, there's still, in the pit of our souls, this nagging question. Why is this happening? Where are you? Have you abandoned me, God? Others of us refuse to even believe in a God who would allow suffering to continue. So what resources does the Bible give us for thinking about suffering? Please stand with me 
as I read Genesis 37, we'll look at 1 through 4, then jump to verse 18. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Jump to verse 18. They saw him. This is Joseph is sent out in the fields to find his brothers. And they saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, cast him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father." So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and cast him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, "'What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood?' Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank you that you have spoken in the past through the prophets and through various means, but in these last days you have spoken to us through your Son. We thank you that we hold your word in our hands and we pray that you would reveal to us through this portion of your word wondrous and glorious things about who you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A good friend recently wrote to me uh, an email that said this about his wife. I brought my wife to the hospital ER at 4.30 a.m. today. She has been diagnosed with acute liver failure and will be transported to a specialized facility in another city shortly. In the absence of remission of this acute condition, she will likely go home to be with the Lord sometime in the near future. The hospital has said they will not retransplant her due to her chronic recurrent hepatitis C virus. Paul Tripp, uh, in his great book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, tells the story of of a girl named Grace. And Grace was the daughter of a woman who had longed to be pregnant, to have a baby for a long, long time, but wasn't able. And finally, after many, many years, 
Her mother became pregnant with Grace, and she was so overjoyed. But Grace was born with a whole host of health problems. For her whole childhood, she never slept through the night, and there were all kinds of other health problems. She was a very uh, uneasy child to deal with. And so her mother grew tired and wearisome for caring for this little one. In fact, over time, her mother grew to resent her, to wish that she had never had her. She began to view her daughter as the one who robbed her life of all joy. And so she was very rough with her daughter. And because of this, Grace would would run and hide under the bed or in the closet when she heard her mother's footsteps coming up the stairs. And her mother would have to wrestle her out. And one of these wrestling episodes, her mother treated her so roughly that her leg was permanently injured and she was lame for the rest of her life. Not only that, but at at a rather young age, she lost her sight, her eyesight, because of so many blows to her head. Now, how do we talk to someone like Grace about suffering? You all have stories like this. Maybe they're your own story. How do we explain to someone about the God of the Bible in light of their suffering? Suffering is a very real thing that's difficult for us to deal with. And in the midst of suffering, we often have a host of people trying to bring comfort. People come and they offer us biblical principles and promises. And yet they roll off our backs like water off a duck's back. And we think, you have no idea what I'm dealing with or what I feel like. It's very difficult. And we think, if God is good, why would he allow this to happen? See, we can't just tell somebody God is good and loving. Because if he's good and loving, why would he allow this? And we can't simply say God is in control. If he's in control, why didn't he stop this from happening? We struggle mightily with the question, where is God in the midst of suffering? And that's very painful because oftentimes in the midst of suffering, we can't hear anything and we can't see God. The story that we are looking at in Genesis tells us of a very dysfunctional family. Every character is flawed. There's no true heroes in this story. We see Joseph. uh, The first time we meet him, he's a 17-year-old brat. We read in in verse 2 that Joseph brings a bad report about his brothers. He's a tattletale. Nobody likes a tattletale. But his brothers have a lot more reason than that not to like him. In verse 3, we see that, that his father, Jacob called Israel here, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons. Now, if that's not a recipe for family disaster, I don't know what is. So relational tension is abounding here. And further we read that Joseph's father made him a robe of many colors. And probably many of you have cut these out of construction paper as young children in Sunday school classes. Uh, Maybe a robe of many colors, maybe a long-sleeved robe, 
But it wasn't just a robe. It was a sign of royalty. Now, Joseph was son number 11 of 12 sons that Jacob had. And Father Jacob gives this royal robe to his second youngest son, signifying that he's the one that's going to rule the family. Now, do you think that's not going to make the other brothers upset? That their little, their little brother is going to rule the family. And then we read, uh, which we didn't read, but um, earlier in this chapter, Joseph has a series of two dreams that basically say the same thing. First, he dreams that they're out in the field binding sheaves of wheat or grain, some kind of grain. And Joseph dreams that all of his brother's sheaves bow down to him. And then he has another dream about the sun and the moon and 11 stars representing his father, his mother, and his 11 brothers. And they all bow down to him. Now, one would think if, if you were relationally savvy at all, and you knew the resentment that your family had towards you, that if you had a dream like this, you might keep it to yourself at the breakfast table. But Joseph just has to blab about it. He just has to tell everybody. See, dreams were, were seen as, as revelation from God. And Joseph felt it was really important for his brothers to know about their future of bowing down to him. And so he tells them. And this just serves to foster their jealousy and resentment of him. So that when Jacob sends Joseph out to the field to find his brothers, they're not super excited to see him. They conspire against him and they say, let's kill him and let's throw him into a pit. And fortunately, Joseph's older brother, Reuben, intervenes and saves his life and says, let's not kill him. Let's just throw him into the pit. But his own brothers, his own family, were ready to kill him. And now he's sitting at the bottom of a pit. What do you think was going through Joseph's mind? The text doesn't tell us, but we can imagine. I mean, what would you be thinking? Why in the world am I down here? Why do my brothers hate me so much? Why did I have to open my big fat mouth? The pit's a lonely, lonely place. It often looks like there's no one there with us. We feel utterly abandoned. No one's on our side. No one understands what we're going through. Words of comfort often don't help. And in the pit, blame starts to come like a raging river. We blame people around us. How could they do this to us? Don't they understand how this is making me feel? We blame ourselves. How could I have been so foolish? How could I let this happen to me? Why am I so naive? And we've got our good friend, what if, down there with us. What if, what if? What if I'd never taken this job? What if I'd only been a better parent? What if I would have seen this coming? What if the doctors could have detected this earlier? And often in the pit, the only answer we get 
is the hollow echo of our own voices saying, where are you, God? Why are you allowing this to happen? Now, some of us this morning know that suffering is in fact a tool that God uses to grow us. We know that. But we'd really, really like to know how God is using a particular situation to grow us. How does this suffering fit into God's good plan? And there's silence. In his book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer tells us about a railway station. And he says, when you're at a railway station, you, sat, you stand on the platform and you see trains moving and trains uh, stopped. And there's all kinds of motion taking place, but you can't figure out what exactly is going on. And he says, we know that if we could just go into the conductor's box for a moment, it would all make sense. We'd see all the lights representing the trains and we'd understand the overarching plan and why things were happening the way that they are. But God doesn't take us into the conductor's box. We don't get to see. The reality of the pit is that we're almost always either in a pit, coming out of a pit, or about to go into a pit and we don't even suspect it. And we see this pattern of the pit in Joseph's life. In chapter 37, verse 36, we read that, that Joseph was sold to Egypt, uh, sold in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. And we're going to read in chapter 39, verses 1 through 4. Chapter 39, 1 through 4. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. Now we can't miss here what the narrator tells us. Joseph had been betrayed by his brothers. He'd been sold into slavery. But in verse 2 here, we read that the Lord was with Joseph. He'd never not been with Joseph. The Lord had been with Joseph in the pit. The Lord was with Joseph in slavery. And God gave Joseph success in Potiphar's house so that he put him in charge of everything. And so life was very bearable for a time until Joseph gets falsely accused by Potiphar's wife of trying to sleep with her. And then instantly, he's back in the pit. Look at chapter 39, verses 19 through 20. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. So again, Joseph is in another time of suffering. 
Yet another opportunity for anger and frustration to boil inside of him. Another opportunity for discouragement. Another time of feeling abandoned. But again we read, starting in verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. And gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. So once again, Joseph is lifted out of the pit. He's still in the pit, but God has raised him up. And after some time, Joseph is in charge of all of the prisoners. And two of Pharaoh's uh, officers, two of his his closest companions, his cupbearer and his baker, are sent down to the prison. Some of you know this story. And they both have dreams about their future, and Joseph interprets them for them. He says that the cupbearer is going to be restored to his position, and the baker, on the other hand, is going to be killed. And after Joseph tells the cupbearer of his future, that he'll be restored, he says, please, please, Remember me and put in a good word for me. Look at chapter 40, verses 14 through 15. Joseph says to the cupbearer, Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. We can feel the desperation in his voice. I've been wronged. I haven't done anything to deserve being here. Why is this happening to me? But as the story goes along, the cupbearer forgets all about Joseph, and he's there for another two years in the prison until Pharaoh, head of all Egypt, himself, has two dreams. And no one can interpret them. And so the cupbearer finally remembers Joseph, and Pharaoh brings him out of the pit. Look at chapter 41, verse 14. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. Just like that. Just like that. Joseph is out of the pit again. Now, what did he do to get out of the pit? Sure, he, int- he had interpreted the cupbearer's dream. But the text is very clear that it was God who gave him that interpretation. So Joseph really hadn't done anything to get himself out of the pit. It was God who lifted him out of the pit. And God allows Joseph to interpret Pharaoh's dreams about a coming famine. And Joseph tells, and God tells Joseph to tell Pharaoh exactly how to store up grain to prevent people from starving to death. And so Pharaoh makes Joseph second in command of all Egypt. And he puts him in charge of storing up grain. And in chapter 146, we read that Joseph was 30 years old at the time. Now, often those are details we don't pay attention to. Okay, Joseph was 30. But think back. This started when he was 17. Now he's 30. What have the last 13 years of his life been like? It's been a roller coaster. He's been in and out of the pit. 
He's on the one hand been at the height of his father's love and affection and at the height of various positions of status in Egypt. And on the other hand, he's been in the deepest pits imaginable. Incredible highs and incredible lows, completely out of his control. Now, most of us prefer more consistency in our lives. We would gladly, gladly give up some of the extreme highs if we could just avoid those pits. And yet Joseph's life is a pattern for us. It's a pattern for what life usually looks like. Sure, most of us won't experience such radical highs, but most of us will find ourselves maybe multiple times in a deep, dark pit. And the Bible nowhere tells us to expect anything different. Peter tells Christians in 1 Peter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So we're not supposed to be surprised. We're supposed to expect it. But what are the purposes of the pit? Going back to J.I. Packer's illustration of the railway station, sometimes, sometimes we can deal with the fact that God is, is using suffering in our lives for a purpose. But we would be far, far more content in the situation if we could just see how he is using it. We like to look at, look at our suffering and see that God is doing something specific with it. We like to be able to look back at, at past suffering and say, now I see. I see what God was doing. I see why he allowed that. And very often we can't see. And it's, it's dangerous for us to think that we can pinpoint exactly what God is doing with every circumstance in our lives. Sometimes we'll have no idea for our entire lives why he allowed something to happen. But sometimes we get little glimpses, little glimpses of his purpose in our pits. And we get a few of those glimpses here in Joseph's life. First, we see some of God's purposes for Joseph. Remember that 17-year-old brat that we met at the beginning of the story? Remember that self-absorbed kid? Well, the character that we meet at the end of the story is very different. By the end of the story, we see a very completely transformed Joseph. See, eventually Joseph's brothers are forced to come to Egypt because of the famine to buy grain from Joseph. And now the tables are completely flipped. Now they are the weak and needy ones. And Joseph has the power and the position to take vengeance upon them, to kill them. He can do whatever he wants with them. But he's a different man. His time in the pit has transformed him. And it's put him in a position to forgive them. Joseph's time in the pit humbled him and enabled reconciliation 
in the family of God's people that never could have happened if he hadn't spent that time in the pit. And if it wasn't for this series of seeming coincidences that we see through these 13 chapters where Joseph's in and out of pits and meets people at just the right time, he never would have been in a position to save a multitude of people from starvation. Well, we also see in that glimpses of God's purposes for Joseph's family. Joseph's, Joseph's brothers still don't know his identity towards the end of the story. But in chapter 45, Joseph reveals himself to them. So flip to chapter 45 if you've got a Bible open. We're going to read verses 3 through 8. Joseph's brothers come to him. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years. And there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Joseph sees how his suffering was used by God to save his family. And later, he even goes so far as to identify the specific evil of his brothers as the thing that God used to bring about salvation. In the famous, often quoted verse, Genesis fifty twenty, Joseph says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And in that we get a little glimpse of God's purposes for all of his people, including us today. See, one of the key and prominent themes that runs through all of Genesis and all of the Bible is the theme of the promised seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent and rescue God's people from sin and from death. But all throughout the storyline, that seed is always in constant jeopardy. See, it's easy for us to look at this story and see it as, as just a family about a story about God saving people from starvation. But what we've also got to see is that jo if Joseph's brother Judah's family starves to death, the line of the seed of the promised Savior is broken. If, Judah, if Judah's family starves to death, there is no Jesus. There is no rescue. There is no salvation. Now, if we've got a, a good biblical theology in our heads, we can see that pretty clearly now. And we think, yeah, of course, that makes sense. And after Joseph's sufferings, 
He got little glimpses of what God was working. But you know what? When he was in the pit, he couldn't see a thing. He had no idea what God was working through this. And so what we need to see is that suffering and pits are a regular and expected part of God's purposeful plan of rescuing his people. He allows us to suffer if we're God's children, not to punish us, but to shape us, to conform us, to sanctify us. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But the reality is that Christians will usually not see the point in the pits of life. When they're in the pit, at least not entirely. But what we have to see is that we've got a partner in the pit. The Bible tells us about the entrance of sin into the world. And it tells us all about its effects in the suffering of humankind. But it doesn't give us an explanation for why God allows suffering and evil to continue. And this is the reason why so many people are unable to believe in the God of the Bible, in the Christian God. How could a good God allow suffering? The Anglican John Stott wrote, I could never believe in a God in a world of suffering who was himself immune to suffering. But Stott does believe in the God of the Bible. And he believes that God is not immune to human suffering, but rather he entered right into the middle of it in the person of Jesus Christ. We see all kinds of parallels between Joseph and Jesus. Just like Joseph, Jesus was betrayed by his brothers. Just like Joseph, Jesus too was sold for pieces of silver. Just like Joseph, Jesus was handed over to the Gentiles. He suffered in silence. He was mistreated. But unlike Joseph, Jesus was completely innocent. And he died to rescue his people. He endured a pit unlike any pit that Joseph ever found himself in. And it was utter hell. He experienced separation from his father like Joseph, but it was so real and so excruciating that when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There was no answer. Only the pit of hell. And through the evil deeds of men, Jesus rescued his people from death. Your experience of suffering will never be anything like 
what Jesus endured. But when you're in suffering, what you need to realize is that Jesus understands your suffering intimately. He's with you in the pit. There is nothing that he has not experienced. He's Emmanuel, God with us, even in the pit. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus was made perfect through suffering so that he would be the perfect sacrifice for sin. Jesus didn't just endure suffering to be a model for suffering, for how to suffer. Jesus endured suffering to end it forever, forever. Until that time, God uses suffering as a loving father to shape his children, to sanctify them. So in, in the midst of our suffering, when we're in the pit and our hearts cry out, where is God in the midst of this? What we need to always be reminded is that God is in the midst of the suffering. He's entered into it completely and fully in the most real and painful way ever in order to end it. See, Jesus didn't stay in the pit. He came out of the pit to bring about new life. And so the God of the pit is also the God of rescue and of resurrection. Let's pray. God, many of us this morning are in a pit or we're coming out of a pit. And many of us are about to fall into a pit and we don't even know it. And often we don't think about suffering until it hits us and we're incapacitated and our head's spinning and we don't know what to do. And the questions swirl. So God, we pray that you would prepare us for the pit. We pray that you would remind us now of the deep theology that we may not be able to grasp at the time. Would you give us a solid and firm foundation on which to stand? Would you remind us of your compassion and comfort and your presence in the pit? And would you give us a greater sense of sympathy and even empathy with those around us who are in a dark pit right now? Would you move us to enter into their suffering and to point them to Jesus? We pray this in his name. Amen.